Welcome to the East-West Psychology Podcast, a forum for the exploration of psyche and spirit. Join our hosts, Jonathan Kay and Stefan Julich, and their guests as they delve into the intersection of psychology, philosophy, world wisdom traditions, the arts, and more. Today, we will be chatting with core faculty Craig Chalquist about the development of terrorist psychology and his ideas on hermeticism and Gnosticism as an earth-honoring path. We will also discuss enchantivism, fantasy, and the archetypal world of myth, as well as how Craig approaches the intersection of scholarship and activism, and his thoughts on the writing process and imaginal scholarship. Okay, welcome Craig to the EWP podcast. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for inviting me. Craig's uh, core faculty with us, and we're just going to uh, have a conversation about some of the courses that you offer, Craig, and some of your uh, areas of expertise and interest, um, and we'll see where it goes today. Great. Do you want to start by just talking a little bit about your history with the department? Sure, glad to. Uh, about 10 years ago, when I first applied to teach with East-West Psychology, I contacted the chair of that time, and um, I wanted to make the case that I could teach different topics. Sometimes instructors specialize in just one or two things, and I had taught research and myth and eco-psychology and depth psychology and a number of other things. So I, I told a little Irish story about the character Luke, who get, tried to gain admission to the Hall of Tara at one point by asking, do you need a blacksmith? Do you need a wizard? Do you need this and that? And they didn't need any of those things. So he said, do you need anyone who can do all of them? And at that point they let him in. So um, that got me my first interview with the chair. And then I start teaching in, in East West psychology. And I have been ever since actually. I have to say that, uh, you know, I kind of looked over your, the books that you have available, <clears throat> excuse me, on Amazon and it's a pretty full array of, uh, I mean, a lot of books uh, and a lot of topics. You cover a lot of territory and I have to say that you cover it really well. So I'm just, I'm looking at the, at the list right now, you know, it's uh, Terra Psychology, uh, Reengaging the Soul of Place. That's the, that's your most recent book, right? Actually, I published one through uh, Routledge just last year called Terra Psychological Inquiry. And then uh, books on myth. Uh, a series of books on California, which uh, look really wonderful. Um, uh, some and books that you've written in um, with other authors also on ecotherapy and eco psychology. Yeah. So there's a lot, a lot of material. You cover a lot of material, and then in the school, and you also teach a course on Gnosticism. And I happen to know that you're um, considering teaching a class on Hermeticism, which I think will be wonderful. That's right. That's the great thing about teaching at um, CIIS in general and East-West in particular is I, I really have always felt encouraged to teach to what I'm passionate about. And there's, there's things over the years that I've stayed passionate about, like um, Terra Psychology, which is <clears throat> um, the study of how the things of the world get into us, into the psyche, into the body, into our moods. 
So it goes a bit beyond eco-psychology that way. It just doesn't just study the health and, and pathology of our relations to nature or the environment. It goes further than that. But So I've been able to teach that because my interest in that's been sustained. And then the hermeticism piece is more recent. Um, I, I didn't even know, and none of us who work on parapsychology realized until fairly recently that we were actually paralleling hermeticism, which is an ancient wisdom path that originated in ancient Egypt and then moved forward from there. And it's, an, it's a lost earth-honoring path of wisdom. And so we're all really blown away that there are so many parallels. It's like hermeticism just spontaneously surfaces in different parts of the world at different times. It's like it's, it's an entity, you know, a psychical entity that, that constantly asks us to um, update it. So I'm working on a book right now that has to do with that hermeticism as an earth honoring path. So that's fun. So eventually I'll be able to teach that too, which is nice. You also approach uh, Gnosticism in a, in a similar way. And my, my understanding of Gnosticism is that there's a, there's a, at least a stream within it that's uh, sort of earth denying, or at least um, kind of has a negative uh, mm -hmm. Uh, appraisal of embodiment. So I'm cu I'm curious how you approach that from a parapsychological perspective. There there are a few Gnostics who are like that, who are definitely, you know, earth denying, body denying. Let's just move on to the pleroma, which is their word for heaven, it means wholeness or fullness, and <clears throat> that's the reputation that Gnosticism has. But um, one thing I've learned studying it over the years is that. Um, the Gnostics themselves tell us constantly, don't take this literally. So we often read it through the lens of having been brought up in, like in my case, in the Christian church, the Lutheran variety, where you take everything literally, you know. Um, Jesus was an actual historical figure who really said these things, and, you know, that's how they hold it. And the Gnostics come from the other direction, and they tell you right in their own stories, these are wisdom tales, these are fantasies, you know. Um, so that's one thing to bear in mind. And the other is there are places in the Gnostic texts where, um, thinking of the Christian ones in particular, where Jesus, who's much more like a wizard figure for the Gnostics, not really a redeemer, at least for most of them. And he'll say things like, um, uh, he, at one point he's asked by the disciples, you know, why, why don't we just kill ourselves and go to heaven if material existence is so evil, you know? And he tells them, you're, you're missing the whole point of being here. There's all kinds of things to experience. And when I say that the, that the flesh is a limitation, I'm, what I mean is materiality. I mean materialism, you know. So some of these are Gnostic code words for ignorance or unconsciousness. They don't literally mean the body or earth or whatever, you know. Um, but there is kind of a, maybe we, we could call it a pro-urban bias in Gnosticism. It grew up in cities like Alexandria. So it's as a branch of Hermeticism, it's definitely urban and introverted and centered on Gnosis, which is direct spiritual insight. And um, when you compare it to the rest of Hermeticism, it doesn't sound as enraptured by the beauty of the creation as, for instance, the Corpus Hermeticum, you know. So I, I sometimes think of Gnosticism as Hermeticism with a hangover. And hermeticism is kind of like Gnosticism on laughing gas, you know. 
<laughs> you read the Corpus Hermeticum and it's like, wow, the cosmos, and you know. <laughs> I got a tooth pulled once and they gave me nitrous oxide and I felt very hermetic afterwards. I was like, wow, everything is so beautiful, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm interested because you used the word fantasy. So I'd maybe like to hear that unpacked a little bit because I'm, my understanding of it, at least from a Jungian perspective, is that it doesn't mean illusion. Yeah, we're not talking about a Mayavadan approach. We're, it's something that's very different. So I'd like to hear you talk about that. Maybe. You know, when Young was starting out, um, he he had worked for some years as a pretty well trained psychiatrist before he caught up with Freud, and then um, the two of them worked together for a few years, and then they went their separate ways. And then Young had that internal crisis that he referred to as confrontation with the unconscious. And while he was going through that, he was reading Gnosticism. He says in Memories, Dreams, Reflections that he didn't read Gnosticism until 1926. But we know from his library that he read it way earlier. Um, and there's so much Gnostic imagery in the red and black books that it's fairly clear he was familiar with those systems. And one of the, th one of the things that he read, and we have a good understanding because we know what was in his library at the time. And so he was reading G.S.R. Mead, who is a theosophist historian who wrote about Gnosticism pretty much before anybody else did. He translated some of it. And so Jung liked his work and he read him. And one of the, the terms that Mead uses, two terms actually, which are Gnostic terms, one of them is active imagination. And so fantasy in terms of um, exercising the imagination, not just making things up, but almost like a layer of reality between body and spirit. That's kind of how Jung thought of it. So the characters of fantasy are real. They just have their own reality. <clears throat> and he didn't get all of that from Gnosticism, but he, I think he got the idea of playing with the imagination through his Gnostic studies. And the other word is archetype, which um, Mead uses. And there's actually several key Gnostic terms that show up in Jung. Um, shadow is a big Gnostic term, for instance. And there's a number of others. So he was heavily influenced by Gnosticism. It's, he, he basically converted big pieces of it into depth psychology early on, and then he added more hermetic stuff through alchemy, you know. But when he was doing active imagination, which is kind of uh, like, um, it's been compared to a sustained daydream, but when you're doing it, you let the internal figures, characters, entities speak on their own. And at one point, he was experimenting with this pretty early on, I think around 1913 or 1914. And there was a character named Philemon who appears in um, uh, ancient Greek myth and also Salome, who's more of a biblical character. And they showed up in his imagination. And he made the mistake, which um, he immediately corrected, of trying to interpret them psychologically while he was actually in the field of imagination with them. In other words, he was intellectualizing. So he told Philemon, I think you represent the principle of logos or logos, you know, intellect, um, all the things that logos stands for, the word and all that. And Salome, I think you represent eros. And Philemon immediately responded to this and said that, he, that we are real. We're not symbols, we're real. And Jung went, wow. And so that was the beginning of his understanding that these characters have their own reality. It's just not physical, you know. So throughout the red and black books, 
over and over, Jung gets into arguments with these internal characters um, who constantly bring his shortcomings to light psychologically. <laughs> it's hard to read sometimes because he spends so much time there being contradicted by them. His thing about the opposites also comes up. You know, he's like trying to slam the opposites together at first. How can we join the opposites? And the characters say, why do you always have to think oppositionally? These are just pairs or complements, you know. So out of some of that comes this idea that if we just sit with a paradox, then it'll eventually show an underlying bridge, you know, or unity. So fascinating reading. But anyway, yeah, for him, fantasy was definitely not just making stuff up. And there's a tradition that goes all the way back to Gnosticism, distinguishing different kinds of fantasy. It shows up in the, the English and German romantics, too. There's the kind that's just um, frivolous daydreaming, but there's the deeper kind where the imaginal actually talks to us. And you mentioned the imaginal, which um, comes out of the, uh, the Sufi tradition. Yeah, yeah. And the, the work of Henri Corbin via Hillman into kind of Jungian psychology. So yeah. The, the idea of Nakojabad or the imaginal realm as, a, as a, an ontologically, as Jung would call it also, the psyche, right? The, an ontologically real existing realm that needs to be apprehended or uh, at least honored as existing in and of itself. Yeah. Which I think st people st still misunderstand that. I mean, I'm still reading contemporary criticisms of Jung where people just won't, they, it, it seems to just bypass them. It's not something that computes for many people. It's actually a scary idea in some ways. Um, Freud wasn't huge into the imagination, but he did believe in psychic reality. And there's a comment that he makes a couple of times in his work where he says that people, um, get scared by this idea because they realize they aren't the masters in their own house <clears throat> and that fantasies have consequences and you know what we what we do with them has even more consequences so one of Jung's um, disturbances that was salutary actually was realizing that when he was encountering Philemon and then Salome and then a whole cast of characters come to him and um, have a number of things to say about how he lives and who he is and it's, it's scary to be confronted by that, especially if it's very different from how you see yourself. Right, but if we don't come to terms with it, we could find ourselves one day storming the White House. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Acting out our complexes instead of taking responsibility for them. Yeah. Right. And in this kind of work, it must be, um, there's a fine line that separates these kind of personas, these archetypes and the self, like developing a healthy self in relation to them. Could you talk a little bit about that? The psyche, as Jung came to understand it, and it's it's implicit in Freud to some extent, but he he thought of it as what we would probably today call a kind of internal democracy, but a real one, a functioning one, where everybody has a voice. And Jung realized that when we suppress one of those voices, we make it stronger. The psyche is a relatively closed energy system, as stated in the terms that he used to use, and so it doesn't go anywhere except back to itself. When you when you stuff something down, it just makes it angrier and uh, more pathological. So Jung wrote a lot, actually, about how his version of depth psychology was to give everything a voice, all the different complexes and archetypes and everybody else who's in there, the instincts, so that they all had a place at the table. Um, I remember coming across that statement that's often been 
um, quoted by uh, Martin Luther King Jr., where he says, a riot is the language of the unheard. And so what, what he clearly observed on the social level, on the cultural level, also exists on the internal level as well. So, and that was something that Young wrote about a bit, although Young tended to think of it more internally, um, not so much about social things. Um, I was going to ask a question um, related to East-West psychology and the kind of territory that the department has developed over the years and how to situate these kind of topics, this kind of uh, life work, you know, um, how to integrate multiple ways of knowing, but in an academic setting, you know, and the kind of rigor that's involved in doing that. Um, I know I, I was drawn to East-West psychology um, because like the classes that were being offered were just so, so unique and, and um, sort of on the periphery of the, the mainstream academy. Um, but the more I got involved in East-West psychology, I realized that the, it takes a, a, a certain kind of depth and rigor to really academically work with these materials. I was just wondering your, your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, um, I've often um, taught and seen for myself that th there's an extra set of procedures for having the disciplines talk to each other, if it's disciplines or practices across cultures or thought systems, you know. It's much more complex than most people realize, I think, especially those of us who grew up with this kind of, um, um, I was going to say Californian, but it, it, <laughs> it occurs elsewhere, too. I'm a lifelong Californian, um, where you, have a, you take a little bit of Qigong and a little bit of Hinduism and a little bit of this and that and the other thing, and you just kind of mash them all together. And um, when you're doing academic work, it, it needs to be much more rigorous and thought out and not appropriative, meaning not just helping yourself to other people's traditions, you know. And at the same time, articulating why these things work together. Um, one of the criticisms, not just of Young, but um, I'm thinking of other bodies of practice like theosophy, is that they don't do that work. They just, they, they just intuitively assume parallels, like one thing sounds one way in a text and that must mean the other thing you know, that comes from a different culture. And that seldom is really the case. There's often significant differences. And I'm thinking, for instance, of, um, you know, the archetypal approach is a comparative approach, as Jung pointed out. And there's been a tendency when working with archetypes to simply run across cultures as though all of the archetypal figures were equivalent on the level of myth and society. So, for instance... Um, the figure of the hero pops up a lot here and there, but heroes are, are held very differently in different cultures. And so we can't automatically assume that they're similar. So when we work academically, we have to bring out the differences and the nuances and the complexities. Even when we do see similarities that run across cultures or times or places. I was just thinking that, that uh, a couple of things came up. First is uh, James Hillman's comment on the California Sunshine School of Psychology, <laughs> which always made me giggle. And I, and I think that you kind of put your finger on that. Um, there is uh, also Jung's comments on um, not on, on Westerners, especially Europeans. And also, I think, have to remember that he came from what he considered a particularly medieval 
uh, period in Western in kind of European history. And there was still this remnant of this very isolated kind of medieval mentality where he came from. But uh, he cautioned against um, becoming beggars at the shores of other traditions. I think that that's really important. And I think that you also kind of touch here on the constructivist versus the perennialist approaches. And uh, I think, you know, I know in my own teaching that that I all I immediately ask, start asking questions that create, in order to create that sense of paradox in this, because I think that it's the tendency, my own tendency is to try and fall down on one side or another because it feels final and comfortable you have to get used to the the paradox and to keep moving between these two because they they appear you and if you look at it in one way it seems that everything is everything and if you look at it in another way it seems that mm -hmm. each instantiation is its own unique mm -hmm. thing yeah and we kind of exist between these two you know a specific example comes to mind of that which is the world of myth and which from a Jungian perspective, myths exemplify or, or express archetypes, you know, that supposedly transcend cultures. And there's an approach taken to myth that uh, um, Jackson Crawford and a number of other mythologists have been critical of. I'm critical of it as well, which is there's a tendency to think of mythic characters in terms of their attributes. So for instance, um, Thor and Zeus both throw lightning, and they're both powerful. So there's been a tendency to think that they belong to the same archetype, and they don't. And I think that was one of Hillman's strengths. He had this, this real feel for the difference of personality between different deities. And that's, that's the way to go, is to get their style more than their attributes. Um, Zeus is a very distant figure. He, he spends a lot of time in heaven. He, he has a kind of an overseeing way of being in the world. He doesn't mess him, get messed up in human affairs. Um, <clears throat> and Thor is very different. He's on earth all the time. He's a hero rather than a sky god. And they both happen to throw lightning, but, it, but that's about the only thing that's similar between the two of them. Their styles are very different. And Thor is constantly blundering into situations that he tries to solve through strength and being shown the limitations of that. And so Thor actually evolves. He learns as he goes. And he's so heavy that when the gods meet in Valhol and they go across Bayverse, the rainbow bridge, he can't use the bridge because he'll break it. So he has to go in the low places and take the long way around, you know. I kind of like that about him. So, yeah, feeling into the differences of style and all that um, as part of this, I think. Craig, I was going to ask about enchantivism specifically um, being utilized within terra psychology, but also just as a, as how how can we talk about it? It's a technique, um, it's a set of practices, um, it's a way of engaging with imagination. I mean, we've talked a lot about it, but I just wanted to maybe get a, a clear sense of exactly, or your maybe some of your practices um, specifically on the idea of enchantivism. Yeah, I, um, I think all of those are true. The, where the word comes from is uh, some years ago, about four or five years ago, I was thinking a lot about activism. And I have activist colleagues and activist friends, and I've done a little bit of it, but not, not too much. 
Um, when I was younger, I actually helped fund street activists, including street artists. Uh, I did volunteer work for an organization that gave them some money. And so I've been in, in the arena for a while, although not a direct um, player in it, um, except here and there. And one of the things I noticed was that activists tend to burn out. Um, what they do is often very dangerous. And as they get older, you know, the broken bones and things like that start adding up. Um, I remember working with somebody to get them money who was at one of the World Trade Center protests and um, learning that those, um, those particular activists used to put big pieces of cardboard on their arms and tape them up because they knew they would be hit by police batons. So it's a very risky thing to do. And although there's many different kinds of activism. So I, I, the questions that popped up for me were questions like, what do you do when you're, when you're getting older and you don't want to break your arms anymore? Um, or you have a family and you're not willing to risk your life anymore in these causes because you have other people who depend on you. Or maybe it's none of those things, but you're just looking for a different way to make a difference in the world. Maybe you're not called to the activist path at all. Um, then what do you do? You know, is there a way for the rest of us who are not heroes in the Campbell sense, the Joseph Campbell sense, we are not on the hero's journey. We, we, we're not interested in the hero's journey. And how can we show up? So it occurred to me that there's a lot of people in the world making very effective use of storytelling of different kinds, not just literal storytelling, although that's part of it, but also film and movement and dance. And one of the things they do for people like me is they inspire us. So when I go into YouTube and I see somebody organizing a dance that's going on all over the world and people of every color and every country are dancing together, that inspires me more than hearing what we're against. And we have to know what we're against. You know, I'm not saying we shouldn't, but I think that it's possible to tell stories that are larger than the ruptures they originate in. They're larger than the injustices that make them necessary. So the word enchantivism started floating through my mind to mean all kinds of storytelling practices, including the ones I just mentioned, that show us what we're fighting for rather than just what we're fighting against. And, and some of them don't even use the metaphor of fighting. Some of them are more about saying, what would an earth-honoring form of society where people were actually delighted to be a part of it, what would that actually look like for you, you know? So I'm thinking of things like Afrofuturism, which um, got really spurred by um, um, one of those Avengers movies. The title's escaping me at the moment, which is silly because I know it pretty well. Um, Black Panther. So, you know, when people saw Wakanda, they were like, wow, you know. So what would it be like to live in Wakanda, you know? Um, so Afrofuturism puts black people into the future and says, this, this is how we look in the future, how we can look, you know. And one of its roots was Lieutenant Uhura on the Enterprise, which was a really crappy part that they gave her. It wasn't Roddenberry's fault. It was largely the, the studio, you know, which limited what she did on the bridge. And she got so sick of the hailing frequencies open routine that she decided to quit, at which point Martin Luther King intervened and said, don't quit because we need to see us on the bridge, you know? So she, she stayed with it and she did everything she could to make that part live, 
you know, and did a great job at it. So she's an example of this. Um, there's somebody I loved. I'm sorry, she's become kind of iconic also as a yes. result. Yes, yep. And there's been others who have followed in her footsteps because of her example. And Or I think of Jacqueline Suskin, who um, is an activist. She's a, an environmental activist who lives in Northern California. And through poetry, she struck up a relationship with a guy that, at the time she didn't realize this, but he was actually a senior official in a logging company and getting ready to log down a stand of trees that she was working to protect. And so with no protest, with no political action whatsoever, the two of them, through the informality of their relationship, came to a different place with all this, and it saved that stand of redwoods. So the, the potential for telling stories together strikes me as immensely powerful. And when people say, well, just telling stories isn't enough, I point to things like Black Beauty, which changed the conditions of cab drivers in England. It's a fictional book about a horse. Or the, the Kalevala in Finland, which is a bunch of fairy tales that galvanized the Finns into fighting for their sovereignty against both the powerful Swedish Empire on the one hand and the Russian Empire on the other. Sometimes stories are enough, or at least they're a wonderful starting point for action in the world. So that's how I think of enchantism. But we were naming something that was already going on with lots of people. Um, Martin Luther King himself, you know, he didn't just say what was wrong, although he was quite clear about racism and poverty and warfare and other things. But he also said, this is what the beloved community could look like. And I've been to the mountaintop and seen, you know, so he inspired as well as criticizing. I often think of it in terms of, uh, I mean, academically, uh, the difference between a hermeneutics of suspicion and a hermeneutics of wonder. Yeah, I was, I was, I was listening to a really wonderful podcast um, that is a conversation between uh, uh, Obama and Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, have you heard this yet? I mean, it's brand new. It's called Renegades. Yeah, it's really, really worth listening to. There are two installments or episodes. Our conversations that are uh, available right now, and it's all on race, essentially, and each of them is discussing their own kind of trajectory through uh, the American racial divide, and it's a really heartfelt, uh, extraordinary conversation. And I think that the the reason that it came to mind is because what you're saying is very forward looking. It's like, you know, we, we have to recognize the past. We have to understand where we came from. We really need to acknowledge because the healing won't come unless we acknowledge and actually look carefully at what happened. But we have to have a really forward-looking viewpoint because we, if we get caught in recrimination, we're not going to win allies. It's going to stay kind of toxic. The, the conversation will stay toxic. So I really appreciate your point of view on, on this. I think in some ways, the especially in this country, you know, we have a lot of hard work ahead of us to dismantle things like white supremacy and, and a whole bunch of other things, too. But that one in particular right now. And so when I when I think of that piece, that's half of it. But the for me, the other half from an enchantabus perspective is how can we dream together to move toward where we want to be? What would that actually look like? Because just in terms of human nature, it, to be against something doesn't motivate most of us. It, you know, some of us perhaps, but there, there's something unsatisfying at a deep level when it's when it's just about what you're against. You know, 
So relearning, we were talking about imagination earlier, you know, relearning how to imagine better futures together would be another step to take. And there's a lot of people doing that um, in many different arenas, film and science fiction and theater and a bunch of others. So, Yeah, this, this is so, so beautiful. Thanks so much um, bringing up the activist part, because that's, that's something that's really uh, inspired me as an artist throughout my life. But it's definitely... Uh, there in in EWP and and CIS in general, um, and is a big part of how I guess we can use our position on the fringe of academia, as uh, you know, to really define and or to redefine um, or extend that idea of a scholar, practitioner, activist. Yep. Along those lines, it's interesting because we're we're speaking now about sort of the contemporary time some of the problems of collective and individual becoming and you mentioned at the beginning how you see um hermeticism gnosticism that coming up again you know almost like it's an archetype in itself and i just wanted to ask you you know we are in different times than when those um th that type of inquiry and that kind of life was was cultivated and we've changed a lot over the last you know centuries you know and um so how how do we think about the archetype reappearing and how do we see it as changing with the times? Um, and then a little bit more of an extension of that is like, is there a need and how do we go about f creating new archetypes according to specific problems of our time, you know, the epistem of our times? Hermeticism in the book that I'm working on right now, I'm portraying it as a living entity that begins... Um, in prehistory in Egypt, all the way back, you know, before there were records. And we know bits and pieces of what that looked like. Um, but this was an esoteric branch of Egyptian religion. And then around the, you know, from the first to the fourth century, in Alexandria in particular, there was a strong Jewish presence, a strong Greek presence, probably Buddhists, um, many other cultural groups, Iranian or Persian, and um, all these mixed together. And so what we think of as what scholars call hermetism begins there um, in, the, in that form. So it's almost like this entity or being or this imaginal um, whatever it is, personality, it starts out Egyptian, it starts out African. And then, and I'm not thinking of it developmentally so much as more like enrichment or elaboration or just experimenting, but it then starts dipping into these other cultural influences, and then it looks like hermetism, and it's actually called the way of Hermes at one time. There's a, there's a, a bit of a mythological mistake there, too, because it's sometimes thought of as the way of the trickster. But Hermes Trismegistus, who begins in Alexandria, Hermes the thrice great, is a wizard, not a trickster. Mm. He has the same name for various cultural reasons as Hermes, but he's a he's a wizard. He's a magician or a magus, the archetype of the magus. And so then, um, from Alexandria, then as time goes forward, um, the way of Hermes starts looking like Gnosticism, and then it develops certain qualities, and you know, very it becomes very introverted at that point, for instance. And then a little bit further down the line, it becomes alchemy. And while it's doing this, it's it's moving through different cultures. So it's actually starting to go around the world. And then from alchemy, it, it 
heavily influences and becomes influenced by romanticism and the romantic poets and musicians and artists and um, then it then it turns into depth psychology and it spends some time there and then i mentioned earlier that um, those of us who work in terror psychology where we look at how um, the things of the world speak to us internally um, are just now exploring how how hermeticist that whole enterprise is um, and there, I could mention other examples too, but um, all this by way of saying that it, it's been in continual, I'm not sure evolution's the right word. I, I don't think it's, I, I, when it was in ancient Egypt, it wasn't less evolved than it is now. Um, but it's been elaborating itself or, or trying on different forms through all those centuries. And so, you know, one of the most urgent concerns that we face right now is the state of the planet itself. And so, I've often thought that it would be really handy to have a, a true planetary psychology that's not only about place and how places get into us, um, but also interspecies. Um, there's a call for a, a trans-species form of depth psychology. Gay Bradshaw is working on that. Um, something that would really be more diverse and, and more... Um, complex than what we have right now and allow us to tell different kind of st kinds of stories about who we are on this planet. So I, I think it, that our psychology is going to have to step up to that. And when I look at mainstream psychology, especially in the States, it's so far behind the time, you know, and it's so mired in um, politics, you know, power politics and um, uh, territoriality and, and this, you know, what they, what they call evidence-based, which, you know, is all a question of who, what do you consider evidence, you know, and who gets to decide, right? So I think we need something way more inclusive than that. Um, so those of us who work on parapsychology are trying to make it a hermeticism, not just of nature, but for the cities too, you know, for everywhere. How, how did the things of the world re-enchant us when we realize that, they're, that we're actually in conversation with them on a deep level? That's the question that we ask. I was thinking of the, you know, the kind of deep African roots of, of what you're talking about. And this is a subject that, you know, kind of, I'm embarrassed to say I know very little about. And I, but I think that that's also, I mean, it's, it's a personal issue, but it's also a cultural issue. The, the kind of exclusion of that voice, that myriad of voices uh, from, from the continent. And if the further back you go in Egyptian history, uh, and the further up the Nile, you know, into this, into the Southern regions, the, the more you see that there is this straight line, this connection into the, into, into kind of the, the deeper history of the African continent. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so I, I really appreciate the, the way that you're reframing it. Uh, I know that I, I have a, a student right now. I don't know whether he's, he's in your classes, but he's, uh, comes from the comedic tradition. I mean, he's read pretty deeply in, in, in um, the comedic philosophy. And I know very little about this as well. I've read a little Martin Bernal and Sheikh Antak Job, I guess, and, uh, and touched on it. And I see it as uh, also, a, I mean, it's part imagination. And I mean, imagination in the way that we're discussing it, it's a, it's a kind of a profound reimagining or reconnection internally and externally, I mean, through history, but also through 
the, in, the, in the lives and the psyches of the people who are kind of living into this uh, to kind of reframe the, the narrative. I don't know where it will end up, but I, I find it actually really inspiring that people are feeling empowered to, to reimagine the narrative. That, that in and of itself, I think, is a good thing. I mean, it could be dangerous because if you reimagine the narrative from certain perspectives, it's a reimagining that closes off other voices rather than includes them. Yeah. In those cases, imagination hardens into ideology, it seems like. Yeah, yeah. But um, years ago, I'm, I'm adopted and I've been interested in my roots pretty much since the start of my life. And um, years ago in my 20s, I began... Uh, trying to contact my birth families just to learn more. And at, along the way, um, when I got older, I participated in DNA studies that are now pretty widely available to people. And they all take us back to Africa. They all go back there. You know, I mean, you can see it right in the right in the DNA evidence. You know, my particular ancestors um, emerged from there about 50,000 years ago. But it's, you know, some people did, some didn't, some, you know. But the whole intricacy of the human family becomes plainer when you do things like that or the work that you mentioned earlier, studying that. Um, right now, there's this great show on um, called Finding Your Roots. Henry Louis Gates Jr., who is just a marvelous historian, um, American historian, he's doing all kinds of things with this, um, particularly for people of color and helping them reconnect to where they came from. So... I, you know, when I look at all this, it's, it, it opens up a number of difficult questions, but I have to say that my overriding feeling about it is satisfaction. And it could be because I'm, I look at it through an adoptee psychology of always, um, liking family connections and how they develop, you know? And so <clears throat> I guess that's my, the bias I bring to it, but it'd be interesting to see where the work goes. And what, um, in terms of hermeticism, what it wants to become next, you know? Right, right, yeah. Um, I was going to ask about, um, we have about 10 minutes left, and I was going to ask a little bit about the red book and the black book. Yeah, yeah. How that's come into your work, and maybe just even a more broader sense, how those have, have changed the scholarship of depth psychology and, and, and looking back at Jung's life and his work. What, so what are your thoughts along those lines? I'm looking forward to teaching a bit of the black book the next time I teach the red book. And um, for those who aren't familiar, the, the black book is basically Young's journals, but there's much more in them than, than just journaling. You know, there's art and interpretation and dreams and active imaginations and all kinds of things. And the black book is the material from which the red book came. The red book is an excerpt, basically, of the black book during a specific period of time. So the Red Book and the Black Book start in a similar... Actually, the Black Book starts earlier now that I think of it, but and it runs later than the Red Book. So it's actually a much larger piece of Young's life than the Red Book is. But at one, at one point, Young thought he was going to publish the Red Book. He wanted to just publish an excerpt and kind of see how people held it. And then he collected some opinions, and they weren't all favorable. So um, it could be that that's what changed his mind, or perhaps he never just got around to it. But he didn't publish either one in his lifetime. And so Sonusham Dasani was the scholar who got the red book and the black book eventually published. He had to work a lot with Young's families because they were 
reticent about some of the material that's in there. And when you read it, you can see why they were concerned, <laughs> especially the black book, um, the black books. There's seven of them. But my, my own takeaway, and, and actually, um, I forget the title of it, but um, when I finished reading the black books, I wrote a blog about it. So it's, it's on the Internet somewhere. Um, if you look up my last name in black books, maybe it'll pop up. But I wanted to write down some impressions while they were still fresh after I finished reading the black books. And um, my experience with them was similar with the red book, which is it made me both more appreciative of some of Young's achievements and at the same time more critical of um, some of what I see as his shortcomings. So I think that's my overall, um, my overall impression. He was, in the Black Books in particular, he was quite uh, honest about his biases and weaknesses and character flaws and other things that he was thinking. Um, the Black Books were a sincere attempt to come to terms with his own unconscious, and you can see that all the way through. He really struggled. Um, he came away with his life's work, which is what he comments on in Memories, Dreams, Reflections. Um, they're very interesting documents. Um, I recommend reading them, especially the black books. Uh, he, he made some changes in the red books that I think were attempts to protect his reputation. And so when you read the black books, it's, it's all there. For instance, um, there's a document that's gone around called Seven Sermons to the Dead. It, it was written in a Gnostic style. And when you read the red book, it looks like the character Philemon is the one who is speaking the sermons to the dead. The dead seem to be Young's ancestors, and they're, they're restless. They, they never really lived fully. And so they've come back for a sort of an, a secondary education, and Philemon is giving them one from a Gnostic perspective. And then when you read the black books, you realize that it was actually Young preaching at them. So I think he made it to come from Philemon so he could then say, well, that was just a part of me that was doing all that talking, you know. He, he was very afraid of seeming like either a madman or a mystic. Um, of course, people considered him both in some ways, so he, he didn't escape that anyway. But in his day especially, well, I guess it's true in our day too. You know, if you were a depth psychologist trying to have a successful career and you were publishing stuff like that, you know, you were in some ways limiting your options. So... I think that's part of where his concerns came from. But fascinating documents. I just wanted to jump in and so I found uh, on the internet um, a blog from you, The Black Books, uh, the Black Books uh, of C.G. Jung, okay. Hermeticism Dreamed Onward. Is that the title? That's it. Okay, yep. For folks who want to take a look. I would also say that, I mean, if you if you want to really be horrified, if you read something like the the Visions seminars, Oh my God! I mean, Jung's language—not just his language, but his attitudes—are on full display there. And there's a really wonderful introduction. I can't remember who the editor of that was, but there's a really wonderful introduction that kind of goes into it. Yeah. And I, th I think it's really worth just kind of standing in the face of it in in an open and receptive manner to understand that he was a person of his times and he had a lot of shortcomings. I think it was Claire Douglas who wrote that. I know she wrote about the Vision Seminar. That that sounds familiar. Yeah. Yeah, she she really um, called it like it was. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's a number of biases that show up. His misogyny shows up in there, his racism, um, other things too, you know, things that we know were true of him. He was he was complex, like a lot of people. A lot of those founding figures were like that. They were spiky, they were they had dreadful flaws, you know. And at the same time, they gave us a lot. So I, I've never found it either necessary or possible to just write them off, you know. Well, it's in a, in a way, it's I'm I, and this has just popped into my head, but uh, it's a little bit like the difference between Parsifal and Galahad. You know, if if you're perfect, there isn't much that you can say. Yeah. Uh, and there's a there's a sort a sort of, I mean, it it can be numinous. They, it can be a numinous experience in the face of in the presence of somebody who is that perfect, but there's a real richness that comes in the human experience of somebody who's fallible and is groping and grappling with their faults and their shortcomings. And I think Absolutely. that you really get that with, with Jung. And yeah, I, I appreciate his honesty. And I also, you know, I get these twinges sometimes when I feel like he's just going overboard or when he seems to be papering over things. But I, I do think that 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 it's a remarkable testimony to him that the, this material is available, yeah, warts and all. Yeah, I mean it's, we're not just getting the kind of um, sanitized, collected works version of him. We have the ability the ability to see this incredible human being with all of his faults and flaws. And, and all praise to Sonu and Joe Cambre and all the people who worked for decades with his family to convince them that this is historically necessary to publish, you know. But yeah, I like your point about Galahad. I think he's really boring. I've never liked Galahad. Um, and he's he's like my favorite example of spiritual bypass. You know, he finds the grail. He dies in rapture. He goes up to heaven. And Arthur and all the knights are back on earth going, well, that was really helpful. What are we supposed to do now? We, we don't even have the grail at this point, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, Parsifal's much easier to sympathize with in many ways. Yeah, and he does find it, and he does put it to use. I like his version of the story better. He br it brings healing to the whole country, which is what we need. Thanks so much, Craig um, and Stefan. We're coming close to the end of our time together. And maybe we could uh, utilize this to talk a little bit about what's on the horizon for you. Um, if you want to make a little more explicit the all of the, this discussion in relation to the courses that you that you're teaching or that will you will be teaching coming up um, in EWP, and also just some of the other stuff that you have going on seminars, um, publications, um, just things that we can uh, keep our eyes out um, uh, from you in the future. Glad to. I, so, um, right, <clears throat> excuse me, right now I'm teaching Gnosticism, uh, Terra Psychology. It looks like I'll be teaching a class on Hermeticism, which will be a lot of fun. Um, I teach occasionally a class on Jung's Red Book, and um, the next time I teach that, I'll be including a lot of Black Book material on that. Um, I sometimes teach ecotherapy, so um, that's probably on the horizon somewhere. And then, um, you know, in terms of my professional page on the internet, it's worldread.com, and that's world and the word read, and it's spelled R-E-D-E, -E, which is the old English word for interpret. Um, there's a page on there 
called webinars. And every two months, I have a low-fee webinar. I charge 15 bucks for an hour, usually runs over. And I pick different aspects of Terra psychology to, to talk about. So it's a slideshow presentation, and then there's Q&A and discussion afterward. So I do that every couple of months. It's ongoing. <clears throat> so that's pretty easy to access. And then I recently got um, the ability to offer CEs to clinicians, psychotherapists, nurses, um, people who need continuing education. So I have an event coming up on April 26th. Um, from 9 to 3 Pacific, and it's actually on the clinical and medical uses of storytelling. And we're going to go into why that's powerful and what the science tells us about storytelling in terms of how it affects both the teller and the listener and what some of the therapeutic and coaching applications of it will be. And that'll be worth six CEs. So, um, also, I'm in Facebook. I have a public page. So, you can, if you look up my name in Facebook, you can find me in there too. And I, I publish all this stuff regularly what I'm up to. So um, those are some things that are coming down the pike. And I'm working away on my draft of the book I mentioned earlier on hermeticism as a lost tradition of a lost earth honoring wisdom tradition. So within, I'm hoping within about three weeks, I'll have the draft done and then I'll start looking for a publisher. So um, I'm aiming for a publication next year. So those are a few things. Great. Thanks so much. Um, looking forward to that. Do you want to just uh, leave us with a couple ideas on um, your writing process? Because I know that's a big part of our department is not only doing these studies and um, embodying a lot of the practices um, that are brought up in e EWP, but also just writing. Um, how, how, to, how to get these ideas out and, and published, but just, you know, dissertations, papers, just any advice you have for uh, students out there? Right. Good. <laughs> no, but beyond that, um, so yeah, there's, well, one thing I want to emphasize is um, it's so necessary to be able to write well, um, to be able to write clearly. And there's a tendency in academia in particular to think that the more abstract you are and the more syllables you have in your words, then the smarter you look. And when you do that, you make it very difficult for anyone to understand what you're talking about. Um, Sometime, if I ever um, come across a time machine, I'm going to go back in time and, uh, and threaten Hegel because I think he was the one that got us started doing this. <clears throat> and um, so what I would recommend is training yourself to write clearly and getting all the training that you can possibly get. Um, there's a writing center at CIS that will be helpful. And then there's all kinds of online resources for this, you know, free writing classes and things like that. And um, having your work looked at by other people. Um, I've published, um, I don't know how many books, um, 10 of my own and then two edited volumes and bunches of papers. And to this day, I'll write things and I'll send it to somebody and they'll go, oh, here's an error and here's this and here's that. And you, you just absolutely have to have other people criticizing your work. So that's a, a vitally important learning tool. And the other thing I would add just off the top of my head is Sort of like I was saying about hermeticism, I think that the work that you're actually doing, like if you're writing a paper or even a dissertation or what have you, if you imagine that it's an entity who can talk to you non-verbally, then it can direct you to some extent. And the more you work on it, the more you can feel that you're on the path. So I've managed to avoid writer's block that way, I think. Um, 
because I listen to the material and when I go off the rails, it tells me I, my keyboard feels different or something changes in me or what have you. And I am, I just had that happen with the book I'm working on. I started to go in one direction with one of the chapters and it kind of went, no, that's not really where I want to be, you know? So then I went in another direction and then that ended up being much more fruitful. So actually listening to the work itself to direct you can be helpful. It needs to be a partnership between you and whatever depths are happening in terms of the work as an imaginal entity that's trying to be born. So that might be a way of thinking about it too. I think that's a really, really powerful image. And I, and in my experience, it's true also. It's not just, again, not just an imagination that, that there is a field, there is a relationship with an intelligence that seems to want to be born through us and we get very real feedback if if we're quiet and, and sensitive to it you know there's you've seen those pictures of philemon that young painted and it's often struck me that they look like the older version of young it's almost like he was painting his future self and in the same way when i write i sometimes ask the material how will you look when you're published someday and then it becomes more a matter of taking down what already exists somewhere in some imaginal sense, you know? So that helps me too. This is so, so helpful. Absolutely. It sounds a lot like, uh, the process of uh, playing music and learning music as a musician. Uh, yeah. and that's that's yeah. what I'm struggling with in terms of writing, trying to translate this, but you're right. A lot of the times just take a, take a step back and listen. <laughs> see listen you know use your imagination your intuition all of the, the 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 things that we've been talking about throughout this hour um but great thanks so much craig this has been absolutely wonderful um amazing uh talk uh stefan do you have anything that you want to add to, at the ending here no i don't think so I've, i think that i was able to kind of like address the things as as we went along um no i think we've covered it Great. Uh, I, I would I'd just like to uh, thank you for bringing up Jackson Crawford because he's one of my favorites. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I'm, you know, uh, watch his YouTube channel whenever I can dip in. The Norse Cowboy. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> well, I want to thank both of you for both inviting me here and asking these thoughtful questions. Yeah, this was wonderful. Thank you so much. Great. Well, we'll do it again, hopefully soon. That's good.